Welcome, and this is the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We are so glad that you are listening in today. As God's people, we are concerned with reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, look us up on our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Please subscribe to always get the next podcast. We'll begin today with a story. In 1997, Reeve Lindbergh, daughter of aviator Charles Lindbergh, was invited to give the annual Lindbergh Address at the Smithsonian Institution's Air and Space Museum to commemorate the 70th anniversary of her father's historic solo flight across the Atlantic. On the day of the speech, museum officials invited her to come early before the facility opened so that she could have a close-up look at the Spirit of St. Louis, the little plane suspended from the museum's ceiling that her father had piloted from New York to Paris in 1927. That morning in the museum, Reeve and her young son, Ben, eagerly climbed into the bucket of a cherry picker, a long-armed crane that carried them upward until the plane was at eye level within their reach. Seeing the machine that her father had so bravely flown across the sea uh, was an unforgettable experience for Reeve. She had never touched the plane before, and that morning, 20 feet above the floor of the museum, she tenderly reached out to run her fingers along the door handle, which she knew that her father must have grasped many times with his own hand. Tears welled up in her eyes at the thought of what she was doing. "'Oh, Ben,' she whispered, her voice trembling, "'isn't it amazing?' "'Yeah,' Ben replied, equally impressed. "'I've never been in a cherry picker before.' Wow. (laughs) A moment of awe and wonder, but perhaps one not understood the same way by everyone. And today we're going to read in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, a story often called the Transfiguration. And it too is a story of awe and wonder, a story that language is incapable of describing the glory of God in its fullest. Jesus reveals himself for a few moments in his full glory. And the disciples who are with him, they're inspired, but they're uncertain what to do. Their reaction might not match the moment. But they want to stay in that moment. And they find out they're not allowed to stay in that moment. In fact, the disciples don't want to face what is to come, which is the crucifixion of Jesus. They don't yet understand what's coming, but they realize it's not what they want. And they can't comprehend that such suffering and such glory somehow fit together. You see, life is challenging. It's uncertain, and it's even unfair. Yet Jesus calls us to face into these struggles, these unfriendly moments, these moments of suffering, these moments that are unwelcome, and we're called to face into them empowered by his glory. And so I propose that much like those around Jesus, his disciples, we can choose to respond to the glory of Jesus and the, the marrying of it with suffering with doubt, with the attitude of, well, I've got to figure out how to control this and take command, or by listening to Jesus. I think you'll start to hear those responses as well. Let's go to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, and read verses 2 through 8 today. The text begins like this. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. 
There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three, three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. What are we to make of this story of the transfiguration? It is awesome in power, mysterious in meaning, and somehow far removed from ordinary life. There's not much in life that we can experience today that is like the transfiguration. We can catch the glimpse of the beauty of a sunset. Uh, we can view uh, with awe the, uh, the scene from a mountainside. We can, and I heard this just the other day, it was such a lovely sound as Betsy and I were driving through the countryside, uh, the spring frogs, you know, the peeping sound they make in the springtime. It tells you the weather's going to get better. What a wonderful sound that is. Those are all moments that are elating and wonderful and, and beautiful, but they're not even close to what the disciples experienced in the transfiguration. We can feel power in a thunderstorm or in an ocean wave. We can experience wonder in the world around us, but it all comes up short compared to transfiguration. To understand the transfiguration, I think we need to take a moment and look at where in the story it finds its home. It's always important to put uh, the stories of the Bible into their context. You don't just lift out one piece and ignore everything that's around it. And so it's important to see that it's resting right in the middle of some important stuff. The transfiguration is found in three of the Gospels, interestingly, not John. That's for another reason for another day. But it's found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And all three of these accounts place a chain of events together very, very similarly, and sometimes exactly the same way. They have an order that goes with Peter declaring that Jesus is to be the Messiah. Then Jesus tells his disciples that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And then Peter tries to tell Jesus that Jesus is wrong and he rebukes Jesus. And, well, that's not right, but that's what happens. And then Jesus declares that if anybody would follow him, they have to pick up their cross and, and follow him. They, they, they have to join him in suffering. And then after all that discourse, all that discussion, you have transfiguration. That's what happens. So there's a whole series of events of, of new information, new understanding that the disciples are wrestling with. They're now beginning to understand who Jesus is, the Messiah, but then they're hearing that the Messiah they've been looking for their whole lives, he is going to suffer in a way they could never imagine. In the Gospels, Jesus is now making his mission more clear than he ever has before. So the disciples were expecting Jesus to take charge as the Messiah, to rule over Israel, to get rid of the Romans. But he's telling them he must suffer and give up his life. Jesus tells them things they cannot comprehend, 
like resurrection. What does that mean? They're trying to figure this out. Even as if you continue reading our text today, when they're coming down off the mountain, they're trying to figure out what on earth does resurrection really mean? What's Jesus talking about? But I would challenge you, put yourself in the disciples' shoes for a moment. They were about, they thought they were about to experience all their wildest dreams come true. For centuries, Israel had been looking for the Messiah, and now they find out Jesus is the one. And these disciples thought, well, we'd never even be alive when the Messiah came. Everybody has always wanted to be around, but nobody ever is. And so now they get to say, we are going to be here when the Messiah shows up because he's Jesus. But then Jesus says, I'm going to give my life. I'm going to lay my life down on a cross. I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise in three days. The disciples are confused. They're actually stepping into a nightmare, if you want to think about it. All their dreams that they've always looked for are not actually how God's going to work. You know, a lot of us have to walk in nightmares. A lot of us have to walk in a world where life seems to be falling apart, where nothing seems to be right anymore, and nothing seems to be able to fix it. Those are moments where you feel despair. You're not sure what to do. And so we're not all that different from the disciples when you're in a moment like that. You know, the disciples can't comprehend that Jesus must suffer. And they can't comprehend that they too must suffer. And so they're wrestling with this question, how how does suffering and how do glory fit together? How does suffering even lead to glory? This is a pivotal moment for the disciples. If they are unwilling to hear Jesus to even try to understand him, they will not be able to continue as his disciples. They may try. They may think they're still his disciples, but if they're unwilling to hear him, they can't follow him. They're going to miss everything and they will ultimately miss out on eternity. And that's one of the struggles we face when we are in the midst of hardship and we can't put all the pieces together. And it's our habit when we can't put the pieces together, we kind of freeze up. In that moment, we're in a dangerous spot. We have to learn how to trust what Jesus is saying, telling us. Doubting, not understanding, being frozen might seem like a reasonable response when we're confused, but it is a deadly path, far more destructive than we can imagine. We can't stay there for very long. And this is the place that the disciples are in. Because remember, our text began today saying, after six days. So for six days, the disciples have been wrestling with, and we're not told all the details of what they were thinking or the debates they were having, but Jesus told them that he was going to be taken and he was going to be killed and that he would take up his life again in three days. And, and they've been wrestling with this for six days. They haven't been able to figure out what it means. They've been wallowing about in doubt. And so that might be our first clue for what the transfiguration is for. The story of the transfiguration is meant to be a sign proving that that Jesus's words are true, that they need to believe what he says, that yes, he must suffer on the cross and that glory will somehow come through that suffering. Transfiguration is a proof. It is proof. But it also teaches us that power and glory are tied to words like weakness and humiliation, and that's okay. So if you're walking through tough times, 
You need the story of the transfiguration. Jesus tells us that there's more than just what we see right in front of us. There is a greater glory just beyond sight. And somehow the struggle we're in right now can be turned into glory. So Jesus takes Peter and James and John up on a high mountain to be alone. We're not sure which mountain this happened on, the transfiguration, but one possibility is a mountain called Mount Hermon. It's, and one reason we call it a possibility is it's close to Caesarea Philippi, which is where Peter declared that Jesus is the Messiah. And so it makes sense that possibly that that's the mountain that uh, they went up on for the transfiguration. I don't know that we'll ever really know, and I'm not sure it's all that important to know exactly the mountain, but it happens on a mountain, and that detail is important. So Jesus, he takes Peter, James, and John, and these three disciples, um, it shouldn't be any surprise that these are the ones that he brings with him. They are the first three disciples you read about in the Gospel of Mark. They are at the top of the list of the 12 disciples. These are the three who will watch Jesus bring a little girl back to life, uh, Jairus' daughter. And, and they are the ones that he asks to keep watch with him when Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane the night that he's arrested. These three disciples, in a sense, are the leaders among the other, tw- among the other disciples Jesus, I think, realizes, I've got to help these three understand so that the rest will start to understand as well. They need assurance. So once on the mountain, Jesus, he's transfigured. He's uh, transformed. The word in Greek is metamorph, metamorpho, which is actually a change of state, not just a, a light shining, but an actual different condition, uh, transformation, and he is turned white. The Gospel of Mark tells us that his clothing glowed white, whiter than anyone could bleach. Uh, Other Gospels say that his face shone. I think it's safe to say that all of Jesus was transformed, not just his clothes. And then it tells us Elijah and Moses, they show up and they talk to Jesus. Elijah, he's seen as a prophet linked to the Messiah and to the end. And Moses is the chief of all prophets and the lawgiver. I do wonder, how on earth did Peter and James and John know that these two were Elijah and Moses? Not like they could recognize them, right? Perhaps Jesus explained it later. This is the moment where Jesus reveals himself in glory to the disciples. And they're uncertain what to think or what to do, but they know this moment is significant. And the details of the transfiguration reveal to us that Jesus is up to something big. On the one hand, it shines back, back to the moment on Mount Sinai when Israel joined in covenant with God. You can read the story in Exodus 24. I challenge you to do that. But I want to take a moment here because of the parallels between the story of the transfiguration and the story of Exodus 24 when God gives Moses the law and unites Israel in covenant with him. They're stunning, the parallels. So, let's just take a moment. Uh, in Mark 9, 2, Jesus takes three disciples up on the mountain. In Exodus chapter 24, verses 1, and then in verse 9, we're told that Moses goes up with three named persons plus uh, 70 of the elders up onto the mountain. Uh, In the transfiguration, Jesus is transfigured, his clothes become radiantly white. In Exodus uh, 34, a little bit different chapter, Moses' skin shines when he descends from the mountain after talking with God, after receiving the law. 
In Mark, on the Transfiguration, God appears in a veiled form and an overshadowing cloud. And in Exodus 24, God appears in a veiled form and an overshadowing cloud. It shows up in a similar way. In the Transfiguration, a voice speaks from the cloud. And guess what? In Exodus 24, God's voice comes from the cloud. And in Mark 9, the disciples are astonished when they see Jesus, and everybody is astonished when they see Jesus after he descends from the mountain. And in Exodus, uh, a little bit later again, chapter 34, those two, 24 and 34, are kind of linked together. The people are afraid to come near Moses after he descends from the mountain. There, there are these links between the receiving of the law in the Old Testament and that old covenant and the transfiguration. See, in the Old Testament, in Exodus 24 through 34, God declared Israel to be his chosen people. And now, on the mountain with the transfiguration, God is declaring to the disciples that he's going to do something new and just as significant. But just as the transfiguration has some links back to the past in the Old Testament, we know in reading the Gospels and the story of the crucifixion, it has links towards the cross, not least of which because Jesus has already said, I've got to go and lay my life down. But if we actually look at the crucifixion, uh, David Garland, I, I have been mentioning him a lot lately. He's got a fabulous commentary on the Gospel of Mark, and he points out these parallels to the crucifixion. He says this, the glory revealed on the mountain is a private epiphany. That's a transfiguration. While suffering on the cross is a public spectacle. And he says, Jesus is surrounded on a mountain by two prophets of old, Moses and Elijah. On Golgotha, he's surrounded by two thieves. On the mountain, Jesus' garments glisten with his glory. On Golgotha, he, they take his garments from him, compounding his humiliation. They even cast lots for them. Three male disciples view his glory at close range at the transfiguration, and three female disciples view his suffering from afar when you read the crucifixion accounts. A divine voice from the cloud announces that Jesus is the Son of God. And then in the Gospel of Mark, it's there, Mark 15.39, one of his executioners, a Roman centurion, acclaims him to be the Son of God after he dies. In both transfiguration and in crucifixion, someone raises the question of Elijah. Coming down from the mountain, Jesus informs his disciples that Elijah has already come, and they did to him as they pleased. When Jesus hangs from the cross in torment, the bystanders taunt him with one last jibe, saying, Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. You can find that in Mark chapter 15, verse 36. So, transfiguration, that story, goes backwards into the Old Testament and forwards to the cross. It is a pivot point, if you will. God is saying, I'm going to do something new. But even more so, there's a moment in the story of the transfiguration where God shows up. And I think that's a moment that is most for the benefit of the disciples and for us. It's a powerful moment. See, Jesus is shining brightly. Moses and Elijah are present. And then we're told that a cloud descends. 
God has a history of showing up in a cloud. You can read it all through the Bible. I'll just pull some examples from Exodus. Exodus 16.10 tells us this, While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. Exodus 19.9 says, The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud, so that the people will hear me speaking to you and will always put their trust in you. I think it's important for us to hear that one, that uh, trusting in the Lord is is uh, paired with God showing up in a cloud. And I think the disciples need to trust God again, and so he appears in a cloud in the transfiguration. Exodus 24.15 tells us, when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it. So there again, God shows up and the cloud is there. Uh, Exodus 33.9 says this, As Moses went into the tent, the tent of meeting, the pillar of the cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke to Moses. There's a rich heritage all through the Old Testament, but I've just read to you several examples from Exodus. The cloud shows up and God speaks. The disciples in the story of the transfiguration are experiencing what they have read about their whole lives, God showing up in a cloud, and he speaks to them, and now they must decide what to do. Because as we are told, if you remember, they are frightened, and they have no idea what to do. This is a moment they hadn't planned for. It's supernatural and beyond their comprehension. So they're left with a decision. And I said earlier, we can have several responses to God's glory. And three of them I see in this story today. One that happens a little bit before the story. And two, one that happens right in the middle because Peter's not sure what to do. And one that God says that we are to do. And those three responses are this. We can ignore what's happening. We can try to control what's happening, or we can listen to what God is saying. So, let's start with that ignoring. This is often a response we have when we are overwhelmed, whether we're overwhelmed with a situation or overwhelmed with our own desires. When you don't want to face the moment that you're in, a response that a lot of people have is to ignore the moment you're in. We often ignore when we have a desire that's stronger than what we're being asked to do. We have our dog, Sophie, our Labrador. She's a wonderful dog. And I will tell you this, and I think if you've owned it, anyone who owns a dog has experienced this. If you've ever owned a retriever, you'll definitely have experienced this. Sophie has deeply within her instincts the need to carry things around the house. Um, and her favorite thing right now are socks and, well, because of the times we're in, masks. We have a bunch of cloth masks and she does pick them up. So we watch her closely so she doesn't have the opportunity to chew on them or eat them. I know that can be dangerous for dogs, but that deep instinct is inside of her. Now, Sophie's a really good dog and she has learned the word no. I can watch our dog and she I can tell she's thinking about getting something she shouldn't or she's thinking about maybe making a run to the end of the yard and going after something she shouldn't and I can go, no. And when I say it that way, I even use that tone, no. I can watch our dog and she will, her body will flinch. She'll freeze and then she'll look up at me and then she'll relax and go, okay, I shouldn't have done that. I, I won't do that. But when it comes to a sock... Or a mask. If I look at Sophie, 
And she spots a lone sock laying on the floor. And yes, we have socks that lay on our floor. Our our son Seth, he'll, he'll peel his socks off and drop them there. And Pastor Josh might be guilty of that too. And Betsy might be mortified that I'm saying that. But we, we're guys, we're sloppy. We take our socks off, put them on a footstool, or we just don't put them in the laundry room yet. And then the dog sees the sock. And if I spot her, I can tell. Oh, she is. She wants to pick that up. She's going to run with it. This isn't good. And I'll go, no. And you know what? She ignores me. I mean, I can look at that dog and see within her that she heard me. And I can see within her that fire in her eye that says, I'm going to get that sock anyway. And that dog will run for it and she'll grab it and she'll make a game out of it. And uh, she ignores Because her desire is bigger than my will in that moment. And that is a response we can have when God speaks. He tells us what he wants, but our desire in that moment is stronger than our ability to follow his will or even our want to follow his will. And that's an unhealthy place to be. Many of us choose to ignore God. He might show up in a cloud or he might not even show up. I mean, often he doesn't show up in the cloud. He doesn't shine brightly, but he speaks and we still ignore him. And I bet you that some of us, God has spoken very clearly and we still do our own thing because we want our way. And the disciples are in this moment. Remember, just before the transfiguration, Jesus told them that he would die and rise from the grave. This didn't fit with their plan, with what they wanted the Messiah to do. And so Peter, he's floundering. This is how I know Peter's ignoring Jesus is before transfiguration. uh, When Jesus tells Peter that he's going to go die on the cross, Peter tries to rebuke Jesus. He says, it's there in Mark chapter eight, verse 32. He says, he spoke plainly about this and Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. He's ignoring what he's, this isn't true. This isn't how this is supposed to work. You need to do something differently. Have you ever faced a moment so difficult you couldn't believe God was in it? No way. I don't believe it. If God loves me, he wouldn't let this happen. And in that moment, we have a choice to acknowledge what God is doing or ignore what God is doing. Well, I don't believe that God creates hardship and suffering for us. He does test us. And I also know he wants us to walk faithfully through hard moments. But if we choose to ignore what God is doing in the moments, those types of moments, we can't continue to walk forward in growth and in life. I have met many a person who was stuck, frozen in time because they chose to ignore and stop their ears and close their eyes to what God was doing. Are you in a hard place right now, facing a tough decision? Maybe you're struggling, you're literally suffering, and you don't know what to do because it's too hard, and, and you'd rather just stop up your ears, and how could any good, any good come from this? I can't see it. I think I know that God can turn all things to the good. C.S. Lewis writes about this in his book, The Great Divorce, and he describes, it's a, it's a fictional book about heaven and hell, but in it is so much truth about what it is to follow God and, and, and live as a Christian. And in the moment, um, one of the characters is being talked to by someone from heaven. And uh, let me just read the quote, and I think you'll pick up on what C.S. Lewis is trying to capture about bad things being turned to good. It goes like this, son, he said, you cannot in your present state understand eternity. 
That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some sort of temporal suffering, oh, well, no future bliss can make up for what I'm experiencing. But they don't know, they don't know heaven. And that once attained, it will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. I think so many of us, we want heaven, but we don't really know eternity yet. We can't understand how God's going to work once we're there. I like that picture, turning even agony into glory. Perhaps C.S. Lewis is trying to describe what Romans 8.28 tells us, where it says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. But if we choose to ignore what God is trying to do, we will miss out on the glory he's trying to bring about in our struggle. So that's one response, ignoring. But another response we can have is to try to control you might wonder how control is present in the story. Uh, so Peter, he's up on the mountainside. He's seeing Jesus transformed and he sees uh, Moses and Elijah. And he decides we need to stay here. He wants to set up some shelters, some booths for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. This is a moment he wants to live in. In that moment, Peter's trying to decide how the story will end. He wants to be in control. But if they stay on the mountaintop in those shelters, guess what can't happen? If they stay on the mountaintop, there's no way to the cross. They've got to come off the mountain for Jesus to go to the cross and lay down his life. Peter is wanting to trade a short-term game, gain that will lead to eternal suffering. Peter can't control God's plan, and we often try to do the same. We often want to live on the mountaintops of life, where we can see for miles and it's wonderful and exhilarating. The mountaintops, though, are not the valleys. The valleys are dark and treacherous, but for some reason, God has ordained that we are to live in the valleys. We grow in the valleys. We're invited to join in the struggle in the valleys. As Jesus' disciples, hardship is a part of the journey. Luke chapter 14, verse 12 tells us what Jesus proclaims, whoever does not carry their cross cannot follow me and cannot be my disciple. Matthew 5, 11 says this, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17 say this, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So yeah, we may try to control the moment so that we don't struggle, but we can't control it. We're not called to control the moment. We're called to do something different. And that's the final response I'd like to point out, the one that actually God calls the disciples to do, and that is to listen. The heart of the transfiguration happens in verse 7. That's for here in the Gospel of Mark, verse 7 is when God speaks. It's when God shows up. And he says almost exactly the same thing that he says when Jesus is baptized. You can go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 11. It says, A voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. This time, in chapter 9, it's a little different. Instead of pleased, God commands the disciples to listen to Jesus. This is my son, Listen to him. 
I think that's a little strange. It should catch our attention because everything about the transfiguration is visual. Jesus glows white. Moses and Elijah show up. God descends in a cloud. Everything's visual. But God says, don't look. Listen. Listen to what Jesus tells you. And what has Jesus told him? He must suffer and his disciples must suffer. That is the path to glory. That is the route a disciple is to walk. So don't lose heart. Instead, know that this is the way to victory and to life. But listening is hard to do, but it's what we're called to do. It's through the Gospels. It's there in John chapter 10, verse 27, when Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. In James, we're told that listening and obedience go hand in hand. You can't truly listen until you actually obey. And there in James chapter 1, verse 22, we're told, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. We are called to be listeners to God, listeners to Jesus, listeners to his word. But here's the hard part. Listening is not much of a mountaintop experience. It's not very exciting. It's not exhilarating. It's not action-packed. It's not an accomplishment. We all want to say, hey, I, I listened today. We usually want to tell about the things we did, the, the great triumphs we've had. But listening's important. Alfred Brendel says this, the word listened contains the same letters as the word silent. I don't know too many people that are excited about silence, but we're called to listen. And it does, need, it does mean we need to be a little quiet when we do. In her excellent book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, Tish Harrison Warren describes an encounter her husband experienced while working on his PhD. This is a really good story about realizing that we triumph in simple things, not just mountaintop experiences. And she says this, while my husband Jonathan was getting his PhD, he got to know a former Jesuit priest turned married professor, a holy man, a provocateur, a favorite among his students. And once a student met with him to complain about reading Augustine's confessions, and the student said, it's boring. And the professor said to the student, it's not boring, you're boring. What Jonathan's professor meant was that when we gaze at the richness of the gospel and the church and find them dull and uninteresting, it's actually we who have been hollowed out. We have lost our capacity to see wonders where true wonders lie. We must be formed as people who are capable of appreciating goodness, truth, and beauty. The kind of spiritual life and disciplines needed to sustain the Christian life are quiet, repetitive, and ordinary. And I would say that includes listening. She continues on to say this, I often want to skip the boring daily stuff to get the thrill of the edgy faith, but it's in the dailiness of the Christian faith, the making of the bed, the doing of the dishes, the praying to our, for our enemies, the reading of the Bible, the quiet, the small, that God's transformation takes root and grows. And I think listening to Jesus fits well within this category of ordinary things we're to do to grow in our faith as disciples. I think listening helps us walk through the tedious valleys of life. So today I invite you, wherever you are, to trust the call of Jesus, to trust what he says, that he has a much better plan for you than what you find yourself trying to do at this moment. Will you trust him 
Don't just live for the mountaintop, but let the mountaintop moments like the transfiguration help you through the valleys. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us to be a people who listen. Help us to be a people to hear the voice of Jesus, but not just hear, but to heed and obey what he tells us. Help us to remember the glory when we want to despair in our struggles so that we will continue on in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.